Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. case that grabbed national attention is headed to trial. Jury selection starting today in the trial of Sandra Melgar, who's accused of murdering her longtime husband, then trying to cover it up. Adam Bennett now showing us what went down today. Both the prosecution and the defense spent the morning going through 65 prospective jurors. But after going through that selection process, they couldn't come up with a group of 12 that they were looking for. Sandra Melger is charged with murder. Prosecutors say the 57-year-old stabbed her husband, Jaime, to death in December of 2012 inside their Northwest Harris County home. They believe Melger then tied herself up in a closet to make it look like a home invasion. The two were found by relatives who came over to celebrate the couple's 32nd wedding anniversary. Melger originally had told investigators that she blacked out in a bathroom and woke up tied up in a closet. But nearly two years later, she was arrested and charged with murder. Now, Melger has been free on a $50,000 bond. If convicted of murder, she faces up to life in prison. A jury selection process expected to resume tomorrow morning. We've seen new developments in a story we've been following since 2012. Jurors are deliberating in the trial of Sandra Melgar. She's accused of staging a home invasion to cover up her husband's murder. And Channel 2's Jake Reiner joins us live in downtown Houston with more. Jake? Jen, we are on verdict watch in the case against 57-year-old Sandra Melgar. The jury started deliberating yesterday evening, continued to deliberate this morning, and in fact, just moments ago, took a break. This is a case that began in 2012, and Sandra Melgar stands accused of murdering her husband, Jaime Melgar, then staging a home invasion as a cover-up. It happened on December 23rd in Northwest Harris County. Sandra and her husband were both found tied up. He was found dead, stabbed 31 times in a closet, she was found bound in a bathroom. The defense says there is not enough evidence to connect her to the murder. We'll, we'll have to see what the jury decides, and we'll let you know when a verdict is handed down. We, the jury, find the defendant, Sandra Jean Melgar, guilty of murder as charged in the indictment. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which districts shall have been previously ascertained by law and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense.
This is the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution. The Sixth Amendment was ratified on December 15, 1791, and guarantees any criminal defendant the right to a speedy trial by an impartial jury of their peers, as well as the right to confront any witness against them in open court. While we can debate all day whether or not four and a half years constitutes a speedy trial, the focus of today's episode is the jury who convicted Sandy Melgar. Was the jury impartial? And did Sandy have the opportunity to confront all of the evidence that they used to convict her in open court? According to Max Seacrest, the jury stole Sandy's right to a fair trial when they took matters into their own hands during deliberations, a claim that he makes in his 345-page appeal brief as point of error number three. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Point of error number three is stated as follows. The jury engaged in misconduct and received other evidence after retiring to deliberate, resulting in the defendant not receiving a fair and impartial trial. Before we dig into this accusation, let's first take a look at the instructions issued by the judge before the jurors retired to the deliberation room. The burden of proof in all criminal cases rests upon the state throughout the trial and never shifts to the defendant. You are the exclusive judges of the fact proved, of the credibility of the witnesses, and of the weight to be given to their testimony. But you are bound to receive the law from the court which has been given you. No one has any authority to communicate with you except the officer who has you in charge. Now, really pay attention to this next part. During your deliberations in this case, you must not consider, discuss, nor relate any matters not in evidence before you. You should not consider nor mention any personal knowledge or information that you may have about any fact or person connected with the case which is not shown by the evidence. After you have reached a unanimous verdict, the foreman will certify thereto by using the appropriate form attached to this charge and by signing the same as foreman. Following arguments of counsel, you will retire to deliberate your verdict. Signed, Judge Kelly Johnson. The jury in Sandy's trial was charged with deliberating over the evidence presented at trial and issuing a unanimous verdict based solely on that evidence. Quote, During your deliberations in this case, you must not consider, discuss, or relate any matters not in evidence before you. End quote. These instructions are issued to the jury before closing arguments. That's the case in every trial. The reason behind that is simple. Closing arguments by the prosecution and the defense are not evidence and are not to be considered as evidence, a point that seems to have been missed by the foreman of Sandy's jury. I will say that both mine and probably my fellow jurors, Pendulum, uh, guilt or innocence, swung back and forth throughout the entire trial. Uh, I didn't didn't 
think she could have done it at first. One, I'll say Colleen's, the prosecutor's testimony, right? It all made sense. Now, was it absolutely provable? Uh, uh, no, but it's the only thing that made sense. We just heard were a few excerpts of the jury foreman in a recent interview with KHOU in Houston. The prosecutor's testimony is the only thing that made sense. This statement plays right into Max Secret's point of error number one, which we discussed in episode 21 of this show. In that episode, we covered the legal sufficiency requirement required for a verdict of guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. A verdict cannot be based on speculation or the probability of guilt. In the foreman's own words, Barnett's theory could not be proven, but it was, quote, the only thing that made sense, end quote. To me, this demonstrates a stunning misunderstanding of the legal standard for reasonable doubt. But let's look past that for a moment and consider what he's saying here. It was the, quote, prosecutor's testimony that tipped the foreman's pendulum to guilty. Again, this leads me to believe that the jury did not have a proper understanding of the law nor their instructions from the judge. To begin with, prosecutors can't testify. It's not allowed. They can only ask questions of witnesses. Secondly, the prosecutor's closing arguments are supposed to be a summary of the case against the defendant. It's not testimony, and it is not evidence to be considered in deliberations. Again, that's why the jury instructions are issued before the closing arguments. Because at that point, all of the evidence is in. We see it all the time in trial transcripts. One side or the other will object during closing arguments, stating that something the opposing counsel is saying is contrary or not supported by the evidence. The judge will almost always overrule the objection and remind the jury that closing arguments are not evidence. If the jury in Sandy's case was considering Barnett's closing arguments as evidence of guilt, they committed a grave error. Not only is that not allowed, but in this particular case, the state's closing arguments were grossly misstated. The entire theory proposed by Barnett in her closing arguments was absolutely contradicted by her own expert witnesses. It was made-up nonsense. And according to the foreman, the jury seemed to have bought it. The fact that the jury was considering the state's closing arguments as evidence isn't even a point of contention in the appeal brief. Unfortunately, Mac isn't legally allowed to argue the jury's state of mind in determining their verdict. Basically, Sandy just has to sit back and watch the foreman of her jury tell the whole world that she was sent away to prison for 27 years because the prosecutor told a good story that, quote, made sense. I think that poet Robert Frost said it best when he wrote, The jury consists of 12 persons chosen to decide who has the best lawyer. Mac's accusation is that the jury considered personal information that was not in evidence presented at trial in their deliberations. This is not allowable under the law, and it was explicitly forbidden by the judge in the jury instructions. It was actually the jurors themselves who informed the secrets that the experiments were performed in the jury room and at the jurors' homes during the deliberation process. After the trial, both the prosecutor and the defense attorney stepped into the jury room to talk to the jurors. This is not at all uncommon. The attorneys will typically thank the jurors for their service and ask what they thought about the trial. What convinced you that the defendant was guilty or innocent? That type of thing. The attorneys are always trying to learn from every trial. What did they do well and what could they do better in the next one? 
In this case, Allison Seacrest was stunned by what she was hearing from the jury. The following is an affidavit written by Allison after the trial. I'll be changing the names of the jurors to protect their identities. On August 24, 2017, I had the opportunity to speak with the jurors before they retired from jury duty on the Sandra Melgar case. The entire panel was present, including my co-counsel, Max Seacrest, as was the prosecutor, Colleen Barnett. While the prosecutor asked the jurors what they thought of the demonstrations, Bill stated that many of the jury members had tied themselves up to see if it was possible to get loose from the bindings. He stated that they had done a demonstration and that on the first day of deliberations, Misty was rolling around tied up on the floor and that she tried to get herself out of the ties and that they wanted to see how much you could see while rolling around and for how long. Misty sounded concerned about the deliberation process, stating how hard it was that she did not want to be a juror and that only God knows who was guilty and what happened. Steve told the defense that we should have persuaded him by doing an investigation and he asked why we, the defense, did not find the real killer and quote, if there was anything that he did not hear or see that says there is a real killer out there, end quote. He added that had the defense, quote, found the real killer, end quote, it would have been the only thing that would have changed his mind about the verdict. So let's look at what the juror that I'm calling Bill had to say. Many of the jury members had tied themselves up to see if it was possible to get loose from the bindings and that they had done a demonstration and that on the first day of deliberations, a juror, who I'm calling Misty, was, quote, rolling around tied up on the floor, end quote. Bill says that the jury wanted to see how much you could see while rolling around and for how long. So we have a couple issues here. First of all, this was not evidence admitted into the trial. Plain and simple, no questions asked, conducting and considering experiments like this during deliberations is an absolute violation of Sandy's right to a fair trial. One of the main reasons being that this, quote, evidence was not subjected to cross-examination. Remember back to the Sixth Amendment. The defendant has the right to confront any witness or evidence against them in open court. Had an experiment like this been performed in court by some sort of expert witness, Mac would have had the opportunity to ask questions like, Would it surprise you to know that according to the only witness who actually saw how the defendant was bound, she was not bound at the wrist as you're demonstrating? Would it be possible for you to bind yourself around your forearms and roll around like that? Just as a few examples. But even more egregious than the violation of the Confrontation Clause is the fact that the material used to bind the woman that I'm calling Misty was not the same material that was used to bind Sandy, meaning they were using, air quote, evidence that was not admitted in the trial. The jurors, both in the jury room and in their own homes, were conducting experiments with items from their own houses. Now, the jury foreman has blown this misconduct off in a recent interview, stating that there was no experiment. The foreman recently told KHU reporter Grace White, and I'm paraphrasing here, that there was no experiment. He laughed it off, explaining that one juror just laid on the floor for a few seconds to see what she could see from that vantage point. No big deal, right? Well, I disagree, and so do the foreman's fellow jurors. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. According to juror, not his real name, Bill, several of the jurors had tied themselves up to see if it was possible to get loose from the bindings, and all of that was discussed during deliberations. And this, of course, was all based on Barnett's demonstration of how she could tie herself up at the wrists, a demonstration that was not actual evidence to be considered, and was in complete contrast to Herman Melgar's testimony that Sandy was actually bound with her arms parallel from wrist to elbow. That is a big deal. Sandy was convicted based on a smoke-and-mirrors-style twisting and manipulating of the trial evidence. It's sickening. This is Mac's legal argument to the Court of Appeals regarding the jury misconduct. I'm going to read it to you directly from the brief. As the evidence adduced at the hearing on the motion for new trial established, when defense counsel and the prosecutor met with the jury after the verdicts were returned, the prosecutor specifically inquired of the jury, quote, what did you think of the demonstration, end quote, referencing the in-court demonstration which occurred on Friday, August 18, 2017, during the cross-examination of Mr. Billy Belk, wherein the prosecutor tied her own ankles and then her wrists in an effort to demonstrate that it was possible for a person to tie themselves up. As the affidavit of Allison Seacrest established, which was admitted into evidence at the hearing on the defendant's motion for new trial, juror, not his real name, Bill, stated, and here he cites the affidavit that I read to you a few minutes ago, and then goes on to say, As the record reflects, there were few factual issues more contested than the circumstances surrounding Herman and Maria Melgar finding Sandy tied up in her bathroom closet. Herman Melgar, Maria Melgar, Deputy Chelly Rossi, Mr. Billy Belk, and Eric Devlin were all questioned concerning the matter, although only Herman and Maria Melgar had actual personal knowledge of the same. The prosecutor did a demonstration in the presence of the jury wherein she tied herself up. That portrayal was fatally flawed, however, because it clearly did not accurately replicate or depict the manner in which Herman and Maria testified the way Sandy was actually tied up when they found her on December 23, 2012. In final argument, the topic was discussed by both sides with the jury. The jurors committed misconduct when they tried to reenact tying themselves up, presumably at home away from the jury members and deliberations, and later by doing a demonstration during deliberations using an unknown object-slash-tie-slash-scarf not admitted in evidence, and presumably brought into the jury room from home. Sandy did not have the benefit of cross-examining these jurors to determine whether they had tied themselves up in the same manner that was described by Herman and Maria Melgar, tightly behind her back, on the arms, above the wrist, and below the elbow, to determine whether the bindings that were used in their experiments and demonstrations were remotely similar to those used to tie Sandy up with on the night of Jamie's murder. 
The Court of Criminal Appeals in McQuarrie v. State held that the trial court abused its discretion in excluding pursuant to Texas Rule of Evidence 606B the juror's testimony and affidavits offered by the appellant, where a jury member had conducted internet research into, quote, date rate drugs and shared this with the other jurors, end quote, because this research constituted a, quote, outside influence. The court recognized the need to limit the jury to the evidence adduced at trial so as to not violate the defendant's right to confrontation. In this case, the jurors experimenting with some form of scarf or tie not admitted in evidence violated Sandra Melgar's Sixth Amendment right to confrontation. The conduct of the jurors may be of such a character as not only to defeat the rights of litigants, but it may directly affect the administration of public justice. McDonald v. Pless Jurors should not conduct demonstrations or experiment in the jury room with physical items that are not part of evidence admitted into the record. McLean v. State, Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, 1964. See also Carter v. State, 1988. Matt continues on, now he's citing lots of case law. There are legitimate reasons to prohibit unfettered investigation and experimentation by the jury in order to maintain confidence in judgments. Quote, A juror must use the law, the evidence, and the trial court's mandates as his ultimate guides in arriving at decisions as to guilt or innocence and as to punishment. Granados v. State and Akon v. State. Such restrictions prevent a juror from acting as a witness against the defendant. The Sixth Amendment right to trial by jury, enforceable against the state pursuant to the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause, Quote, implies at the very least that the evidence developed against the defendant shall come from the witness stand in a public courtroom where there is full judicial protection of the defendant's right of confrontation, of cross-examination, and of counsel. Piles B. Johnson. Similarly, limiting jury investigations is consistent with our case law that limits a court's consideration of evidence to that in the record. For example, the state must prove each element of an offense beyond a reasonable doubt, and the evidence supporting the sufficiency of the evidence must be contained in the record. Jackson v. Virginia, Brooks v. State, and Hernandez v. State, holding that the appellate courts cannot act as, quote, independent scientific sleuths to ferret out the appropriate scientific materials when the state failed to produce any evidence supporting a finding of scientific reliability. Then Mac wraps up his argument with the following. With respect to harmless error, the same is true as to the improper and prejudicial experiment conducted by jurors as to whether a person could have tied themselves up. This was a critical issue in the case, and the jury's experiment invaded the crucible of cross-examination. Reversible error is present. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A fox should not be on the jury at a goose's trial. That's a quote from 17th century English author Thomas Fuller. 350 years after Fuller penned these words, they still ring true today.
begin this next segment with a brief explainer of how jury selection works in our country. In order to fully explain the process, I think it's first important to understand that we don't have a jury selection process. What we have here in the U.S. is a jury rejection process. Opposing counsels are not trying to choose jurors to sit on a jury. During the selection process, they're simply eliminating jurors who they don't want to sit on the jury. The process begins with a pool of potential jurors being selected at random. Those individuals are mailed notices ordering them to report on a particular day for jury duty. Prior to the potential jurors' arrival at court, they're typically required to fill out questionnaires for the lawyers to review. Once they report, potential jurors are typically gathered into a room where they are given some very basic jury instructions. Here in Michigan, we are shown a short five-minute video explaining how the process will work. From there, a bailiff will come into the holding room and pull pools of jurors out for each of the day's trials. In Sandy's case, 65 jurors were selected. Twice. The first time, the attorneys couldn't agree on 12 jurors for the trial. Once the 65 jurors move into the courtroom, the process of voir dire begins. Depending on which region of the country you live in, voir dire is pronounced differently, but the loose translation of the term is to speak the truth. This process begins with the judge asking the pool some basic questions. In this case, she explained that the trial is expected to take around two weeks and asked potential jurors if any of them had any scheduling conflicts. A few from the pool raised their hands and explained to the judge that they would not be able to serve on such a long trial. A college student, a pre-planned vacation, a doctor, just to name a few. Next, the judge asked some basic questions that we hear in just about every trial. The one that we'll be focusing on today is the question of whether any of the potential jurors recognize or know any of the parties involved in the trial. The judge herself, the defendant, the police officers involved, the defense attorneys, or the prosecutor. After a series of questions, the judge will then dismiss people from the pool who she believes would not be adequate jurors based on their responses to her questions. And then we move into the strike phase. Each side, the defense and prosecution, is permitted to ask specific questions of the jurors and strike members from the pool. The process can go on for days in some case. Each side can request the judge to eliminate potential jurors for cause, and then it's up to the judge to determine if their reasoning justifies removing the juror. An example would be if the defense asks a juror if they know anyone in law enforcement. If one juror replies that they do in fact have several relatives who are cops, the attorney might ask if the potential juror thinks that those relationships might bias them towards believing that the police are always right. If the juror says yes, then that attorney would ask the judge to remove that juror for cause. But on the other hand, if the juror says no, that their relationship with police officers does not bias them in any way, the judge isn't necessarily likely to remove that juror based on cause. In that case, each side is afforded a predetermined number of what are called peremptory strikes. Typically, that number is around 10. Attorneys from each side are allowed to strike that number of potential jurors from the pool for any reason or no reason at all, with the one caveat being that race cannot be a reason for any peremptory strike. So that's the process. In Sandy's case, we began with a pool of 65. After the judge's questioning in voir dire, there were less than 12 jurors left in the pool. Then it was back to the drawing board. A new pool was brought in, and after that process again, this time we were left with 12 jurors and an alternate. And the trial began.
last item that I want to cover today, well, it's an uncomfortable topic. I personally am extremely uncomfortable with the relationship between the prosecutor, Colleen Barnett, and the foreman of the jury that convicted Sandy. I want to say right up front that to date, I have found no direct evidence that Barnett and Tom had a relationship before the trial. I want to make that clear. The jury's still out on that, so to speak. But I am deeply disturbed by some of the shenanigans that have been discovered after the trial. I began having some suspicions about the relationship several months ago. To begin with, I was of course curious as to how a jury could see the evidence presented at Sandy's trial and not find any reasonable doubt. I was and continue to be baffled by this. Then I heard that only five of the jurors were prepared to convict after the trial. The other seven were convinced to convict during the deliberations. That's a pretty big swing. Ten to two is one thing, and not at all uncommon. But only five guilty votes after the trial? That's something very different. And then I noticed this. I'll say Colleen's the prosecutor's testimony. Every time I've seen Tom, the jury foreman, speak or write on the case, he always refers to the prosecutor by her first name. Never the prosecutor, not Miss Barnett or Colleen Barnett, always Colleen. In that clip you just heard, you can hear him correct himself. I'll say Colleen's the prosecutor's testimony. Then the reports started coming in. I've had reports that Barnett and Tom have been seen together in social settings since the trial. I've been told by multiple sources that they are in pretty constant communication with each other, at least via text messaging. And I've been told, and this is unconfirmed, by me at least, that both of their sons are actually pilots at the same airfield. I have several sources close to this situation that have all expressed some deep concern over the potential personal relationship between the prosecutor and the jury foreman. In my case, my concerns grew deeper when a disgruntled listener created an alternative website and Facebook page boasting the mission of, quote, setting the record straight. Within a week or so of that page's creation, documents that I had been requesting from the DA's office for over five months were suddenly released to the author of this page and largely unredacted. I've never actually been on the page. However, within hours, my phone was blowing up with our listeners and family members of Jim and Sandy horrified by the fact that this new page had published unredacted photos of the crime scene and Jim's autopsy. Personal cell phone numbers, email addresses, home addresses, and ID and passport numbers of the victim's family members. Basically, everyone who was supporting Sandy and has gone public with their belief in her innocence was doxxed on the page with documents provided to them from the DA's office. I couldn't wrap my brain around how, number one, this person was given such quick access to these files, and secondly, how could the DA's office have been so careless in sharing this highly confidential information with a man who was operating on a grudge and had zero experience operating as a media outlet of any kind. Then, it didn't take long to see that our jury foreman was deeply involved with this alternative group. He had declined to interview with me, stating that he was just too busy, but there he was, interacting on this page and website almost daily. Then, some other familiar names started to appear in the group. 
For example, the state's blood spatter expert Celestina Rossi showed up and began enjoying her rock star status amongst the other members. It was becoming apparent to me that it's very likely that not only the jury foreman, but also the creator of the page were in constant communication with Miss Barnett. It was my belief that this entire, quote, setting the record straight page was nothing more than a PR campaign propagated by both Colleen Barnett and the foreman of Sandy's jury. While I was prepping for this week's episode, all about alleged jury misconduct, I received some new information that confirms two things. Number one, I can now confirm with 100% assurity that Colleen Barnett and the jury foreman continue to be in communication and do have some sort of personal relationship, at least after the trial. And number two, Barnett is absolutely working with and providing information to the group that is dedicated to, quote, setting the record straight. The page that somehow got access to unredacted DA files doxing the family of the victim. In order to protect the identity of my sources and avoid any potential retaliation upon them, I will not be publishing the documents that have been provided to me. All of the evidence and sources discussed in today's episode have been preserved and provided to Sandy's defense team and will be made public if and when the time is right. As for now, I want to thank those of you who have had the courage and tenacity to seek out the truth and continue to fight for justice. Moving forward, we stay the course continue to fight for honesty, integrity, and fairness in not only Sandra Melgar's case, but in the American criminal justice system as a whole. And the saving grace in all of this is that Colleen Barnett no longer has any involvement in Sandy's appeal process. Despite her actions at trial and her disgusting antics after the verdict was read, there's a new sheriff in town now. Harris County District Attorney Kim Ogg has already shown us that her desire is truth. She has agreed to meet with Sandy's new attorney, Kathleen Zellner, and is opening the door to a post-conviction investigation by the defense. Oftentimes in these cases, the process of uncovering the truth is obstructed by a district attorney's office refusing to allow for new testing and analysis of the evidence. I believe that with Ogg and the appellate division of the Harris County DA's office opening the doors to Sandy's defense, we will find the truth and justice will be served. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. 
Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on the Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at Truth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.